Hey guys, Cocky listeners. I've got so much to tell you since I last made an episode, but I've left Mawson at Cape Denison getting the huts underway as the Aurora headed off with Frank Wilde's Western Party, and I think we need to get on to the story. A flat expanse of gneiss, close to the harbour and to a toehold on the glacier, was selected for the huts, there being two, since circumstances required two bases now be consolidated into one. Rock drills were employed in the boring work, establishing holes into which dynamite could be placed to make larger holes in the hard rock into which the hut stumps could be bedded. The cold made the explosives difficult to detonate, so the powder monkey took to carrying it in their inner pockets until the moment it was placed in its hole, and in the absence of clay, penguin guano stood in as camping material. Concrete was mixed and poured, but Mawson suspected it froze before it cured, though since the overall effect was the same, that wasn't much of a problem. The pyramidal huts built onto the stumps, comprising tongue-in-groove wooden panels, arose under the foremanship of Alfred Hodgman, as you would expect of the resident sketch art. The boards, warped from their saltwater inundation on the deck of the Aurora, were gadgeted back into shape by ingenious means devised by Bickerton. Connected internally and surrounded by verandas, the steep pitch of the hut roofs deflected winds effectively, which is fortunate considering the reputation Cape Denison developed as one of the windiest places on the planet. Stores were banked under the veranda eaves, creating an insulating layer around the hut walls and runs in which the dogs could be housed out of the worst of the weather. Snow banked against the stores by wind and human effort added an extra layer of wind and thermal proofing. Bunk beds lined the walls of the living hut communal space, the only walled-off areas being Mawson's office and Hurley's darkroom. Bickerton turned the outer hut into a capable and productive workshop. A lathe and drill press provided the fine machining, while a converted blow lamp acted as a small forge for heavier ironwork. Tinsmithing, brazing and even thermite-based welding were carried out with an inventiveness born of necessity and an aplomb arising from the satisfaction of achievement in overcoming challenging conditions. Additional timber went into the construction of a hangar for the Vickers REP piece of crap, which did nothing for the winter and little enough after it. The space under the huts acted as a cold store for the mutton carcasses and such, The weather at Cape Denison exceeded the worst conditions yet recorded anywhere in Antarctica, with winds regularly precluding outdoor work for long periods. Anemometers, comprising metal cups mounted on sticks, mounted in a horizontal rosette and rotating around an axle, often broke under the pressures placed on them by the strongest gusts. I mentioned catabatic winds in episode 2, those being caused by the masses of cold air above the polar dome, beginning to sink downhill. With nothing to interrupt their progress, the winds gradually pick up speed until, after thousands of kilometres of uninterrupted acceleration, they blow at blizzard strength for sustained periods. Cape Denison lies downhill of a long, uninterrupted ice fetch, over which the catabatic winds can gather momentum. With the storeboard anemometers, the Denison Denizens devised an alternate device they named the Puffometer, comprising a hollow post containing a clockwork recorder device 
and a string and ball arrangement hanging down the outside. The puffometer could operate in far stronger conditions, though with less precise measurements than regular anemometers. Strong winds lifted the aluminium ball from the side of the pole, and the tension this placed on the string registered on a piece of carbonised paper in the recorder, which spooled the paper past the recording needle over the course of an hour. The resulting graph mapped wind strength over time. The strongest gusts the expedition experienced during puffometer deployments registered as 180 knots, 280 kilometers an hour. Average wind speed during the expedition's stay at Cape Denison was calculated as 40 knots. 12-hour periods with average wind speeds of 80 knots were common. The hut, though solidly constructed and bedded down under its insulating layer of snow, often felt and sounded like it might lift from its footings during the stronger gusts. Two meteorological screens established near the hut housed the various thermometers, sunshine meters, recording anemometers, anemographs for recording wind direction, and nephoscope for recording cloud cover, which were tended by Madigan. Wire stays attached to wooden blocks wedged in the cracks in the rocks helped hold the screens upright against the wind, though several breakages occurred during the strongest blows. The two magnetic huts, one for the magnetograph and one for absolute measurements, were built far enough from the main hut to preclude any interference from the iron stove and machines. The magnetic huts required considerable buttressing to withstand the conditions their exposed site experienced, 30 tonnes of stone being moved into position as a windbreak to this end. Webb's voyages to the magnetic hut sometimes required he navigate back to the living hut by dead reckoning, often finding himself at the crest of the roof and feeling his way around until he found something by which to orient himself and working his way to the entrance from there. The meteorological screen, set as it was on a rise near the hut, copped the worst of the gusts, but at least it was close at hand. Those tasked with outdoor work leant into the wind to prevent their being blown over, and magnetician, Eric Webb, often needed to crawl to his workstation to avoid being thrown clear of his track and lost in the blinding snow or the winter darkness. With a strong wind behind him, Webb found that he could reach his hut very quickly as he slid across the nearby ice flat, bare poles though he was. Webb's voyages to the magnetic hut sometimes required he navigate back to the living hut by dead reckoning, often finding himself at the crest of the roof and feeling his way around until he found something by which to orient himself and working his way to the entrance from there. Gusts could heave a body clear off the ground and throw them down again some distance away. Fortunately, the bulky clothing necessary for operating in such cold climes prevented anyone being badly injured. On the 25th of February, Mawson assembled his Cape Denison denizens and held a claiming ceremony with the Union Jack raised above the main hut, though his referring to the coast on which they stood as part of a daily land gave tacit credibility to the French primacy in the region, again frustrating later British efforts at projecting some sense of dominion over the area. For the first month of occupation, the hut residents chased down and plugged up the many holes found or formed by the incessant strong winds. 
With the huts completed and the various scientific instruments installed and calibrated, the regular routines of base life kicked off, with a roster of night watch taking care of measurements, fueling the stove and helping the cook as needed while all the others slept. The stove, designed for use with anthracite coal, provided a consistent indoor temperature of around 30 degrees Fahrenheit and mostly didn't provide much trouble until really strong winds blocked the outlet with snow. The snow melted and refroze into an ice chunk and these blockages required that someone get their Burberry on and head out with an ice axe to clear the problem. Firm foundations were laid for the wireless generator and a hut built around the machinery once installed on its footings. Sledging rations were weighed and bagged and Mertz provided some skiing instruction, though too little too late for skis to serve the expedition as well as they had Amundsen and his team. Mawson paced his team through the winter, working schedules running to three hours a day other than when weather allowed construction to go ahead unhindered. Hunter took the longboat out and set traps and towed dredges, bringing up sea stars and nodothenoid fish. Seals and penguins were laid in as a store of meat for both men and dogs through the winter, the largest catch being an elephant seal yielding over a ton of meat and blubber for the dogs under the flending ministrations of Ninus and Mertz. On the 8th of February, Hunter found one of the fish traps badly battered and another lost altogether after a strong blow, and it was decided to haul the longboat clear of the shore and make it secure for the winter. But at the first opportunity the weather gave for this activity, four days later, the boat was already gone, blown out to sea and never to be seen again. Stillwell collected rocks when the weather permitted and found the Cape a repository of stones from a wide range of sources, carried by the glaciers, which he measured as travelling up to 100 yards annually in some parts of the local geography, and deposited at their terminus during the summer melt. Rivulets of meltwater coursed over the rocky promontory, white with rock flour, the eroded continent heading out to sea in powder form. Ninnis and Mertz tending the dogs, Madigan with the bulk of the meteorological duties, Murphy acting as quartermaster, Wetter replenishing the hut water supply with ice cut from the glacier, and Close shuffling the snow that clogged the passages, working between the crates and boxes during the strong blows formed the Veranda Club, a loose confederation bonded by their close association with the weather, gossiping their days away in the cloisters beyond the hut's coal-fed warmth. Hodgman, assisting Madigan by taking the morning meteorological scheme as he came off night watch, caused concern when he lost his way in particularly bad drift snow. A search party went out, crawling forward to the boat harbour with no boat, roped together and taking turns to anchor themselves with a pickaxe as their compatriots moved north in a jackstay arrangement. Hodgman eventually turned up of his own initiative, caked in ice and snow, but otherwise unharmed. The most dramatic Antarctic images of people's faces encased in ice come from Hurley's camera, as long periods of work outdoors often saw residents return indoors with all but the smallest hole through which to see what they were doing still available to them. Careful thawing and cracking were necessary to avoid injury as facial hairs were often torn out by overly vigorous clearing efforts. 
February the 29th provided adequate weather for the first proper sledging foray up the nearby glacier. Deciding the dogs should not be worked until the next season, the better to let them recover from their arduous sea voyage. Mawson led a man-hauling team, but depoted the sledge and returned to the huts when the weather closed in. Noticing that regardless what conditions prevailed at the hut, the wind blew much above the thousand foot above mean sea level mark. So even on days of dead still conditions at sea level, the overlying air comprised strong winds. The closing days of summer saw several litters of pups born, and one of the senior dogs, Caruso, euthanised after a gash in his paw laid him low and refused to heal. As nights grew longer, the auroral observations kicked off every 15 minutes, and discharges of St Elmo's fire came to the attention of the night watchman, the eerie blue lights streaming from any pointy object left in the slipstream of the wind. A lightning rod raised to collect the discharge could be induced to give off a fair-sized spark, filling the hut with the pervasive smell of ozone. A bell rigged up by Hurley to alert the sleeping science team to discharge activity was quickly dismantled for being too disruptive. Sometimes, sleep is more important than science. Another of Hurley's riggings, a hose laid out around the hut wall from his bunk to the acetylene generator, had exactly the desired effect, that being to freak Webb out. Always concerned by the explosive potential of the machine, and with good reason, what with acetylene being damn dangerous stuff, Webb found himself tormented by vigorous gurglings caused by Hurley's surreptitious exhalations down the hose. But no one else ever seemed to hear the commotion. Once, after a particularly rigorous bout of bubbling, Webb awakened Mawson to report the disturbing noises. Blearily, Mawson inspected the unit, spotted Hurley's handiwork and, not wanting to give the game away to the snooty magnetician, blithely commented that the generator did, indeed, seem likely to blow them all to kingdom come and return to bed. Hurley had to fight to stifle the laughter and keep his mirth contained to his bunk. On March the 24th, everyone felt extremely cheerful on account of the fine weather, even though the average wind speed for the day logged as 45 knots, just going to show that you can get accustomed to pretty much anything given time and a sufficiently skewed baseline. In this case, the baseline was skewed strongly by peak winds measured by the puffometer as 180 knots. Any substantial lull in the wind prompted quick action to make progress erecting the radio antenna. Blasting holes with dynamite to receive the masts and the dead men to which the stays would attach, piling rocks on top of the buried dead men to add heft to their efforts holding down the guy wires, and finally erecting the four upright sections constituting each mast. The efforts ran the entire span of April, falling fallow through the winter dark and reaching completion in early September as the sunlight returned. Where early in their residence the team would wait for calm for this work, as time wore on and the realisation that Cape Denison experienced no ordinary weather patterns dawned, the work would progress in progressively worse conditions, the final topmast going aloft in 35 knots with gusts, Bickerton building on his reputation as a hard case working in the bosun's chair, bare-handed, as he worked the nuts and bolts. You don't see that type of array so much these days, but the pair of masts with dipole aerial wires strung between them were a common sight in my youth. 
and it was this manner of high-frequency array that the Denisonians built to cast their story northward. The relay station at Macquarie Island received many of their transmissions, but the listening watch at Cape Denison never heard any response until the following February and following an aerial disaster and rebuild, of which more anon. Likely sent during a moment of merriment and never expected to strike home, the cryptic message, We are sorry for Paul Lazeron, caused concern for the well-being of the biologist when received at Macquarie Island. Snow accumulating against the box barriers and the hut roof as the weather grew colder prompted vigorous tunnelling to connect the veranda with stores caches and out to a point in the lee of the hut at which wind scouring would maintain a relatively clear run to the indoors. An alcove taken from a tunnel into a snowbank afforded a nursery for suckling puppies and their mothers. Corell gave the next missing person scare, going out for coal during the night watch. In hurricane conditions, he lost his bearings, dumped his coal and sat down to wait for dawn or death. Hurley, awakened by the cold that followed the stove going out, headed out in full search and rescue mode, finding the missing occupant sitting about 20 yards from the entrance. Winter routines continued, everyone keeping busy indoors until a quiet spell announced abated winds and those with reasons to go outside rushed to dress in and take advantage of the relative calm. But actual still air, rare as it was, caused uneasiness and a sense of fraught anticipation for some undefined but imminent event. Relative calm also invited adherents of the snow wash to trouser down and apply the icy exfoliant, but the popularity of this approach to hygiene lessened as time passed and days grew shorter. Cooking duties rotated on a similar basis to the night watch, and people either fell into the categories of crook or unconventional cooks, with the term championship used to denote any particularly entertaining failure in their efforts. Notable examples of championship efforts included a tin of beans exploding while thawing in the oven, the galley area still yielding the dried and refrozen evidence of the mishap for many weeks after, and a loaf of bread baked to a fossil in an attempt to make up for the absence of leavening in its preparation. No one could work out on whose watch the dwarf bread came about, but it took on a life of its own. The baker tried to hide their championship by throwing the loaf to Lewitt, where it joined the straggling comet tail of refuse streaming away to the north of the huts. The dogs gave the loaf a wide berth, but someone found it and it became something of a winter quarters totem turning up in odd places like a particularly judgmental cereal-based gargoyle. Winter darkness saw celebrations become increasingly important diversions from routine, and people regularly consulted the almanac to fill in the blank spaces between birthdays and public holidays, Mawson noting that the anniversary of the first use of gaslight on London streets received more attention than at any other point in his life. As with Scott and Shackleton's winters on the ice, the Australasian Antarctic expedition produced literary output in the form of the A Daily Blizzard, edited by Maclean. The essential but noisy and much derided roles of Cook and Nightwatch became the focus of a play submitted to the publication. Terebus and Error in Eruption was reprinted in full in Mawson's The Home of the Blizzard. 
a monthly sweepstake based on the average wind speed generated much fervour. Numbers were sold by auction, chocolate being the currency. Some people could save up their allocation, comprising well-thumbed morsels, while others kept inflation at bay by scoffing theirs. Two members, who didn't care for the treat, ended up controlling much of the local economy, and the resulting friction and resentment were only temporarily assuaged by their holding a weekly roulette game. The lull lasted until people saw where the chocolate was flowing, and the house quickly and wisely got out of the game with its profits and its hide intact. The McKellar Library, named after its donor, saw much use, and particular books sometimes became hot topics of conversation among the hut residents, people racing to finish so they could join the water cooler chat. McLean ran a monthly series of health checks on a half dozen Denison denizens, monitoring blood properties through the seasons and measuring a marked increase in haemoglobin during the ten months of observations. Instrument failures kept Bickerton and Carell busy with repairs. Besides anemometers blowing apart under the strain imposed by the strongest gusts, the clockwork mechanisms of the automatic recorders broke down under the extreme cold, nothing having broken, just the parts seizing under the accumulative friction of microscopic crystals of ice. An old-fashioned remedy, boiling the clock, helped but the best cure comprised bathing the mechanisms in successive baths of alcohol and benzene, the residues of which staved off the condensation of water before it could freeze and cause further trouble. Team members gained experience driving dogs through June, helping Robert Bage transport the boulders to the side of the magnetic huts. The regular shuttling of sledges loaded with boulders kept the dogs in good fettle, while inuring the drivers to the idiosyncrasies and pitfalls of dog-mediated transport in a relatively safe setting, where mistakes could cost only embarrassment rather than life-threatening delays. In addition to the windbreak, Bage employed the boulders in constructing an astronomical observatory. Those who'd never before wielded a needle, thread, thimble or palm became dab hands at clothing repair, alteration and fabrication with an alacrity born of necessity. Nowhere else on earth is appropriate clothing in good repair more at the daily forefront of the human mind than in the high latitudes. On the 29th of July, Ninnis and Mertz carried a few hundred pounds of stores to Webb's magnetic observation cave up on the glacier, the first sledging operation post midwinter's day, giving the dogs a running in. A follow-up sledge foray took Ninnis, Madigan and Mawson out up the glacier foot overnight on the 9th of August. Pushing on through 40 knots with stronger gusts, the trio and their dog team reached the sledge depoted five miles south of the hut the previous autumn. The conjectured demise of the depot in the intervening five months proved false, though the effects of snow scour on the weather side of the equipment indicated you couldn't expect anything to last indefinitely in the local winds. These winds caused such difficulty in pitching the tent that the group decided to excavate a burrow in which all future sledging parties could rest on their first night out from winter quarters. Aladdin's cave provided excellent service on this front, the glassy interior offering a haven from the weather without the flapping uncertainty of canvas an ample storage space, 
new shelves or vestibules simply being a matter of hacking out the necessary negative space. The resulting chips of ice served as a water source for brew-ups and meals, and a convenient crevasse that the cave accidentally coincided with served as a waste receptacle. The downhill run back to the hut required vigilance and very little pulling power. All but two of the dogs were let off the traces, the others being allowed to run ahead, and even those two left in harness were let off as the grade and the polished ice surface took care of the motive needs. Eventually, a one out front steering and two in back using crampons on their boots, holding the load from running away configuration, was used to reach the hut. The dogs, expected to be waiting for the sledging humans back at the hut, in fact doubled back, returning to Aladdin's cave and bedding into their habitual slots in the snow. Robert Bage led a party to look for them in deteriorating weather and found them alive, but for one elder female. The dogs refused to face the blown snow outside, in spite of the bags of food that they might have eaten their way into, preferring hunger to a face full of snow. Resting on ice rather than snow led to the dogs freezing into place, requiring some effort with an ice axe to free them, after which they were taken into Aladdin's cave and given a warm hoosh to revive them after their discomforting ordeal. Early September brought a rare period of calm weather, which saw Hunter and Lazeron taking samples of marine life through cracks in the sea ice. Beige and Webb started taking star sights to calibrate the chronometers, and many sledge loads of food and Primus fuel were carried up to Aladdin's cave in preparation for the coming sledging forays. These kicked off with preliminary missions, aimed at ensuring all teams could operate effectively and independent of winter quarters for extended periods. Leaders were instructed not to stay out longer than two weeks and to stay within 50 nautical miles of Cape Denison. Webb led the Southern Party comprising McLean and Stillwell on the 7th. The trio made hard slogging up to Aladdin's cave and on to the further depot over the course of two days. Finding their tent too full of holes to trust, they dug a second ice cave, Cathedral Grotto. Magnetic measurements came to nothing as Webb's instruments froze solid with the condensation of their breeding and the party turned back to Cape Denison, caching their food and fuel for use in better weather. Ninnis, Mertz and Murphy tried their hand to the southeast, making a similar hard slog up to Aladdin's cave before diverting their path across the glacier, the surface proving so hard that their sledge meter began to shake itself to pieces, the components requiring regular tightening to prevent it falling apart entirely. Crookweather also saw this party return to Aladdin's cave and then to Cape Denison where the combined experiences of the two returned sledging parties gave some concern for the well-being of Madigan, Close and Wetter, working out to the west. With no sign of them by the 26th of September, Ninnis and Mertz took a supply of food and fuel to Aladdin's cave with the idea of scouting for signs of this final party, happily finding them making their descent from the plateau, bringing with them a tale of hardships overcome and goals kicked. The western foray reached the full 50 mile extent of their remit, battling weather and a failing tent to do so. 
tent repairs undertaken four stitches at a time, that being the maximum that ungloved hands could handle, kept their party safe from the 75 knot winds, but only just. The sledge regularly headed on its own journey as the wind caught it broadside, and crevasses, frostbites and falls characterised their progress. Having reached the 25 mile mark on the 15th of September, they made camp and attempted to celebrate Close's birthday with a bottle of port. The wine, frozen solid to the point its expansion popped the cork from the bottle, didn't yield to attempts at thawing, eventually coming out in welcome celebratory lumps after vigorous warming and shaking over the primus. Tall Sestrugi hampered progress as the party passed the 28 mile mark, finally losing sight of the sea. Good progress for a couple of days saw them nearing the end of their remit tether, but poor weather continued to plague the party, leading to a new and novel method of pitching the tent, in which one person would crawl inside the canvas, while the other two worked to secure the skirt and valance. At a prearranged signal, the two people outside raised the tent peak, and the inner man would push up and out against the poles with arms and feet, attempting to fit the feet of the leeward poles into divots gouged to receive them. On the 19th of September, 50 miles out, they depoted a week's worth of food and kerosene and began their return journey having barely glimpsed the surrounding terrain, the weather having remained so bad. Their regularly repaired sledge meter gave out just shy of the halfway home mark, making navigation more a matter of guesstimate than measurement. Past the halfway mark, marked by the mound at birthday camp, the tent collapsed its canvas tearing as the poles came down in 80 knot winds and placing the team in dire straits, forcing them to dash for Aladdin's cave, the distance covered and navigation suddenly becoming deal breakers with life or death stakes. Obviously, they made their distance and their navigation proved sound, or I wouldn't be relating this to you, but post hoc knowledge for us doesn't preclude their having experienced existential dread as they kicked off their do or die march. They started with a feed of frozen food and set to, reaching the cave in adverse conditions and badly frostbitten. They celebrated their feet with a big feed, the primus purring late into the night. The return of penguins to Cape Denison received uproarious celebration, and the local Amdram Society staged an impromptu opera, The Washerwoman's Secret. Then, the radio mask blew down and bummed everyone out, but the storm that laid the radio hardware low aside, October saw a gradual improvement in weather and preparations for sledging reached fever pitch, culminating in the digging out of the Vickers REP air tractor. Trial operations demonstrated the engine could only reliably operate in fair conditions, and therefore the machine was relegated to the westward party, the region to the west being deemed less important than the south and the east after the preliminary forays, and therefore slated for a December kickoff. The transit aboard the Aurora had shown the coastline to the east unlikely to yield its secrets to a maritime survey, and so Mawson took it on himself to explore that region most vigorously, kicking off as soon as weather allowed. The far eastern party comprised Mawson, Ninnis and Mertz, and made use of the bulk of the best dogs. 
a near-eastern party comprising Stilwell, Close and Hodgman would cover ground north of that examined by Mawson and Company and then depot supplies for other parties operating in the east. Madigan, McLean and Correll would study the coast east of the Mertz Glacier. Bage would lead Hurley and Webb south to seek magnetic observations closer to the roving pole and Bickerton would nurse the air tractor to the west with Hodgman and Wetter, the later start allowing for Hodgman's return from the near eastern foray. Mawson's team departed the hut on the 10th of October, Mert's final effort at a penguin egg omelette receiving clamorous praise, and while all present knew it would be some time before they partook of this past master's eggy efforts again, no one suspected it would be his last ever omelette. Again, hindsight offers insights those operating in the fog of the present can't hope to hold. The dogs ran well though the Australasian method of operating a team required a human out in front breaking trail on skis and giving the dogs something to work toward. This navigational quirk aside, the team recorded excellent progress, those men not out in front able to ride the sledges, so hard did the Greenland Huskies pull. Sometimes this tractive power proved problematic in that the dogs would give such momentum to the sledge load that even small sastrugi could cause the whole lot to capsize. When this happened on a downhill grade, the load would tumble and the dogs, still pulling for all they were worth, would knock themselves in the traces until the whole mess came to a halt and the untangling and reloading could begin. In areas where the sledging skirted cliffs or crevasses, the dogs couldn't be trusted to work safely and watched from the safety of lines tethered to ice axes as the men lowered the sledges on alpine rope. While alongside the Nunatak they named Aurora Peak, which had dominated the landscape for several days prior, half of Mawson's dog team disappeared through a snow bridge over a wide crevasse. Their safe retrieval and similar near misses for the two dogs running free due to injury and pregnancy prompted a camp and a rethink about their position, and it was during this rest stop that Ginger Bitch gave birth to her litter of eight pups. The heavily crevassed terrain was part of the ice feeding the Mertz Glacier that they'd previously encountered as the floating ice shelf extending far out to sea, and their progress in following days was characterised by regular falls into thin air for dogs and men alike, the only possible concession to greater safety being everyone roping in. All the while, Mawson made the magnetic, meteorological and astronomical observations that gave scientific merit to their efforts at surveying the area. Dogs deemed not worth their feed were shot and added to their counterpart's larder. One dog, named Shackleton, stole the feed bag and scoffed two and a half pounds of butter, but escaped the transgression unscathed on account of being a good puller. Crevasse falls became increasingly problematic as entire sledge loads fell through snow bridges, requiring a slow unpacking by one of the three men, suspended on an alpine rope, to the point that the remaining load was light enough for hauling out. The territory had become worse the further their traverse took them, but then improved, apparently, as the group departed the coast and moved away from the tortured ice comprising the sources of the coastal glaciers. On the 13th of December, with stores reduced sufficient to require only two sledges, the party repacked their gear, 
most of the food and the tent going on Ninus's sledge. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Actually, this wasn't just happenstance to be corrected later with a more balanced lading, but a deliberate acknowledgement that any calamity was likely to befall the sledge out in front. Loading the rearmost sledge with the most valuable items and powering it with the best pulling dogs was a calculated strategy geared to maximise the chances of success and survival. Mertz was out in front, breaking trail on his skis, when he waved Mawson to a halt with a hand signal that indicated something unusual up ahead. Mawson busied himself with position calculations and noticed, as he moved about the sledge, indications he was on the lip of a snow bridge across a crevasse of a kind they'd crossed hundreds of times in their trek. He communicated this to Ninus, still coming along with his team from the rear, who altered course to cross the nearly recognised danger squarely. Mawson heard a dog whimper, but nothing more from the rearmost team as they broke through the snow crust and fell deep into the crevasse. On looking up from his calculations, the empty landscape gave Mawson the news. A slight rise in the ground between him and his last sighting of his companion gave momentary hope that Ninus was temporarily obscured from view, but he headed back along his tracks and found they now intersected empty space. No sign of Ninus or the sledge showed in the darkness. A dog lay on a ledge some distance down, whining pitifully, its back apparently broken. Mertz brought up Mawson's sledge and the two men broke the crevasse lid back to the edge, made themselves fast and began lowering ropes to ascertain how far they might reach in an attempt to find their companion, calling all the while for some sign of life from Ninus and receiving none. After three hours, the crippled dog long since falling quiet and what supplies could be seen lying well out of reach, and above all, no response from Ninus, Mawson and Mertz left the crevasse edge and assessed their new situation. With all but a week and a half of human vittles and all the dog food went the tent and most of the spare clothing, the spade and the ice axe. In short, they were up shit creek. They climbed to higher ground to better observe their surroundings, taking a sighting and making magnetic observations, these absorbing mechanical operations serving to distract from their predicament. Looking over the scene of the tragedy, it became apparent that while Mawson crossed the crevasse diagonally, exposing him to the danger for longer, his riding on the sledge reduced the per square inch pressure his crossing placed on the snow bridge. Ninus, Walking alongside his sledge at that point may have placed sufficient point pressure on a weak point in the bridge to precipitate the broader collapse that took him, his sledge and his dogs into the darkness. Mawson and Mertz made themselves soup by boiling up all the old food bags and fed the dogs some worn out mitts and finesco while they mapped out a plan to make the most of the resources at hand. Every possible iteration considered leading to some pretty grim conclusions. The six remaining dogs were the less competent and strong pullers, and the stratagem of loading the rearmost sledge with the most valuable items, sound as the logic was when applied, bit them in the arse very badly. The crevassed terrain nearer the coast prompted a circuitous return journey, and so no depots had been laid on the outward leg. The nearest extra food lay at Aladdin's cave. 
Mawson and Mertz returned to the crevasse edge in the forlorn hope that Ninnis might have lain unconscious during their previous attempts to raise a response. But again, no reply came to their calls. Mawson read a burial service. The two men shook hands and they turned away. And I'm going to leave Douglas Mawson's story there for the moment. There's a lot more to recount, at least one more episode. My training voyage in the Arctic went really well. I was accepted warmly by new colleagues. I got along well with the passengers. I made friends among the ship's crew. And I turned an irrational fear of polar bears into a rational fear of polar bears, which is still a significant fear, but just one that I can manage a bit better. Watching people familiar to working in the North go about their business and move through the landscape with confidence and competence reassured me that such work is doable and reminded me of the manner in which Australians go about their landscape, aware of snakes, though we don't need to carry a big high-power rifle to deal with them. Fortunately, I didn't see any polar bears. I did see a lot of whales, a lot of birds, a lot of icebergs and glaciers, and I've fallen in love with the Arctic particularly Greenland. I don't know if I can record a series about the history of the Arctic. One of the things that appeals to me about thinking and writing about the Antarctic is that I don't need to be particularly culturally astute or alert, because no one was living there when people started exploring it. To even begin thinking about a series set in the Arctic would require a lot of reading, and a lot of thinking about how to tackle a lot of topics with cultural sensitivity. And I don't know if that's my strong suit. But it's a nice thought that if I bring iced coffee up to the present day, there's a project in the offing for me. I certainly want to go back. But the training that I received has set me up nicely for my Antarctic foray which kicks off at the end of October. As I mentioned at the start of the episode there's a lot to talk about. I think I might bump my hosting up a notch so that I can get it all out in October before I head off. Recording is underway for Will Science for Food and I look forward to the editing and mixing side of things once all the songs are in the can. There are too many to name individually but this week My thanks go out to my new colleagues, an amazing team of really talented people and just lovely to work with.